0: For those of you who are new here, we have a custom, we we take it from uh, the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, we stand at the reading of the word of the Lord, so why don't we stand together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul and Savannah and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be amongst you. For, for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come." Please be seated. It is clear from the opening of this letter that the gospel is a message that provokes strong reactions. Some will outright reject. God's good news, and even work hard to silence and intimidate and harm those who speak it. While others respond differently, they will hear the message, receive it, and experience a radical change in their lives because of its truth and power. When Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus showed up in Thessalonica, these two reactions were very much the responses of the Thessalonican people towards the gospel. There were many in the city who became agitated and sought to do the Christians harm. But there were also many who were impacted greatly by its message, and verse nine summarizes it very well. He says that many of them turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. What we're going to learn this morning from this opening chapter is that the gospel when received with an open heart, has the power to radically change a life. So the first thing I want you to notice is really found in verses 1 through 4, and that is how Paul opens up his letter to the Thessalonican people. So let's read it together. Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Two observations that really stand out for me in verses 1 through 4 is that I want you to notice that Paul has a constant habitual habit. He's got a habit. <laughs> He's got an addiction. And it's called praying continually for the church. You notice in verse 2, he says that he always thinks of them. And he constantly bears in mind who they are. The always, the constantly. He's constantly going to the Father in prayer. And and he has the Thessalonians in mind. This was not a once and done for Paul, as his as their spiritual father, as their lead, his leader, his shepherd, he made this an habitual practice. So if you and I were to go and hang out with Paul, and we listened to his prayer life, you would hear the Thessalonians mentioned always and constantly in his prayers. Pretty cool thing to think about. But what's really interesting and really important for us is that notice what his prayer is filled with. His prayer is filled with praise and thanksgiving for who the Thessalonians were. Now this is really important because we're going to find out later as we go through this sermon series that they still had some issues they were working through. It wasn't like um, they were, there was like un, no, no unresolved issues. But Paul would still give thanks and praise for who they were. And notice the categories in which he gave thanks and praise for them. He gave thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Now, he doesn't define what those mean here, but there's sort of three words surrounding faith, hope, and love that give us a hint. He calls it a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. So those three words give us an indication of what he means by these phrases. So the works of faith he's celebrating in these guys is not a simple intellectual faith in Jesus. It's way more than just, I'm celebrating the fact that you've put your trust in the Lord and you've made a logical decision for him. No, he's saying it's more. It's a work of faith. It's how their faith in Christ was practically being lived out in them. Their faith was seen. It could be witnessed by others. And so we understand this in other passages in the scriptures what works of faith look like in ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 paul says for we are god's handiwork created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do probably the most important passage in all the scriptures in terms of faith and works working together is found in james he says what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no works can such a faith save them Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, does, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not a, if not accompanied by works, is dead. And so he's noticing, he's giving thanks to the Lord for the works of faith. When Paul was amongst them, he knew how they were practically living out their faith in Jesus and how it was expressed to other people. He also speaks there about their labor of love. Now the word labor just simply means to toil or to experience hardship. So they were known as toiling in love or living out hardships in love. It reminds me of 1 Peter one twenty-two. Uh, um, do you remember when before John and Charlene came, I preached a sermon from there about how we were to respond as a community when they showed up. And one of the key things there was that they were to fervently love one another. And that fervency had the same, um, in the Greek language, had to do with a muscle straining to its fullest capacity. So you think of a racehorse or a, like a bodybuilder in the gym and you look at all the veins and striations of a muscle, that's how much intensity is required in love in the Christian community. And so Peter talks about fervent love. Here, um, Paul talks about the labor of love. It creates the same picture. They're toiling and working hard to love one another. And in the introductory sermon I did two weeks ago, I pointed out different places in which they were known for their love amongst themselves and towards people outside their church community. So the love of the Thessalonians then went far beyond a feeling or an emotional state. It was a love practically lived out and witnessed by the Christian community. He also gives praise for their steadfastness and hope. Now, some of you in your Bibles will have the word endurance there. Steadfastness, endurance, it's the same thing. Now, this is really, really critical. Remember what we've learned so far from two weeks ago and even what we read today. In verse 9, it says they were a church under much tribulation. So this was a persecuted church, and yet they were known for their steadfastness of hope. In other words, under persecution, they had not shrunk back from maintaining their faith in Jesus and ditching their faith in Him because life was too hard. They continued steadfastly in endurance to persevere. But it was because of hope they persevered. It was the hope of who Jesus was and what He had promised for the future. The the promise of His future return, the promise of eternal life, the kingdom to come, and it made them be steadfast because they thought, I'm going to count the cost of this because I know it's worth it. And this is what they were all about. But I'm going to speak to myself first and any of you who have a leadership position in this church, any of you that share with me in the shepherding of Genesis House, I and we can learn a lot from Paul. We could learn from him in terms of habitually praying for this community our genesis house church we can also learn that we are to give thanks for who we are because when i read these categories labor of love work of faith steadfastness of hope i and we see that in you we're going to our 11th year in september we are i from what i've seen we can be categorized of these things I think paul if he was to pastor this church would say genesis house you are known for these things again have we made mistakes along the way absolutely have we had to work through issues absolutely but every church has but we are known for these and so i just want to give a personal shout out on behalf of myself and the leadership to say we are proud of you and we give thanks for you but one thing i've learned from this is that i need to do this more often We need to do this more often. So, as I mentioned in the beginning, this sermon is about the power of the gospel to change lives. Well, no one can become a person of faith, hope, or love unless the gospel makes an impact. So Paul is going to tell us how this is to take place, how the gospel must take root if this is going to occur. And so the sermon outline is as follows. For the gospel to change a life first of all it must come to you it must work in you and it must come from you so let's look at it coming to you verse five for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be amongst you for your sake. In verse 5, Paul begins by reminding him of the conversion experience that they had. And he says the gospel that you received had two important aspects of it. First of all, it came in the word. There was a... When he says um, it didn't come to you... Um, didn't come to you in word only. He wasn't saying as if there was no word there. He's saying there was a word plus something else. So the gospel they received did come in a word. In other words, there was a message that they heard. So that's one side of the coin. But on the other side of the coin, it also came to them in power and the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. So I think what's important to notice here is that not only was there an intellectual component to the gospel but there was an experiential one as well if it if the Holy Spirit came in power and in full conviction there was an experience in their life in response to the word I think of it like the dynamic duo you remember the Batman and Robin they were in the Marvel comics and the movies they were called the dynamic duo they work together to defeat um, the enemy well here we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit as a dynamic duo They're working together to produce change in the Thessalonians' lives, and in ours as well. Now the power here, he speaks of, coming from the Holy Spirit, is not defined. Just like totally, like um, at this point, I'm going to give you my suggestion of what I think it means. But in other places in Paul, power is often referred to as a place where when he came as an apostle, they experienced miracles. So in Romans 15 and 18, Paul made this this, uh, declaration. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God But what I have said. So there's the word. But then he says, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So the miracles were authenticating the word and the power they saw was saying, oh my goodness, Like from what I saw in these healings and so on, God must be real. But we also know that the Holy Spirit uses the word in a different way. The power can be in terms of what it does emotionally to you when you hear it and how it convicts you of sin. So the power can be linked to the experience of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin to a person's life when they hear the word preached. And this is really important, because in Isaiah 59, the Scriptures make this clear. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. So if we've been cut off from God by sin, we have to be drawn to God to be made right for our sins. Well, the Holy Spirit has a role to play in doing that. In John 16, in verses 7-11, Jesus said this, But in fact, it's best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Won't come if I do go away then I will send him to you and when he comes he will convict the world of sin and Of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me So the Holy Spirit's job is to convict people of sin and when you hear the word preached the Holy Spirit's using the Word of God to bring uh, Conviction to people's lives and as they hear the truth of the scriptures they go oh my goodness I need the Lord. I'm going to be judged without Him. I have no eternal life without Him. And I'll walk in guilt without Him. There's no relationship without Him. And so we feel the weight of it. And every person who comes to faith has to come to a place where they recognize their helplessness without Him. And they feel the weight of their sin. And so clearly when Paul showed up, he reminds them of their conversion experience and says, "Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in the power and in the and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." So there's a couple of things we can take away from this in terms of our, our own lives and how we minister to other people. If we want people in Okotoks to be changed by the the gospel, the gospel, the words itself, the message has to be spoken. The implication, then, is the Lord expects you and I to know what that message is and how to articulate it. If we declare something else other than the message of the Gospel, something else other than salvation will occur. We can talk about spiritual, all these spiritual language and stuff, but if we don't declare the truth of the Gospel, they might feel they had an encounter with God or something, but they haven't. They need to hear the Gospel message, because it's that which God uses to convict people. So we have to know it. We have to be able to articulate it And secondly we have to trust in the Holy Spirit as we preach the word to convict Because we can't we can't in our own selves make anybody become a Christian But the Holy Spirit's role is to use the words that we're speaking to bring conviction and then to conversion So we partner with the Lord in this ministry But he's the one who does the work in the heart So the question I think before us this morning is where are we at in our willingness to share this truth with other people? Are we willing to share the message of the Lord and trust in the Holy Spirit to do his work in their lives? So for change to occur, the message must come to you. But it must also must work in you and must work in you. Evidence that the Gospel worked in the Thessalonians' life can be found in verses 6 and 7 and 9 through 10. So let's read this. 6 and 7. You also became imitators of us and of the the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's clear from these verses that the Gospel made a profound impact in the life of the Thessalonian Christians. The first thing that happened to them, which we can see in verse... uh, One of the first things, I should say we can see in verse 6, is that they became imitators of the apostles and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember what the apostle Paul faced in terms of tribulation. When he was um, saved on the road to Damascus, later on the Lord told him in Acts 9, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul knew what it was to suffer for the Lord jesus in terms of his own life told his disciples on different occasions that he would also suffer for the sake of the gospel these thessalonians then were imitators of the apostle and the and the um and the lord so in essence they were third generation imitators of what it meant to suffer for the gospel but here's the interesting thing notice how they suffered what was their attitude in suffering? It says here that they did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the West, that seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? How can you have joy and suffering in the same sentence? That doesn't even make logical sense. It's a paradox. We think you can't have joy unless affliction is eliminated. But Paul is turning this on its head. He's saying, not so. Not only this, we also can think in the midst of suffering that God has rejected me. He must be distant. When life gets hard, the Lord's abandoned me. Not according to Paul. He says, even in the midst of suffering, joy can be found in the Holy Spirit. And he's not saying this, by the way, it's like when you suffer affliction, you know, know, basically beg for more, and say, you know, sign me up for tomorrow. I want more of the same thing. It's not that. It's that the joy is found in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. I want to read to you from a commentator uh, named Howard Marshall. He makes this comment. The joy which comes from the experience of salvation is of such intensity that a believer is prepared to put up with what are, by comparison, minor trials. He sees his sufferings from a new perspective. The joy which comes from the experience of salvation is of such intensity that a believer is prepared to put up with anything. The fact that they know Jesus, have that relationship. But not only this, think of the future. The future they have in verse 10. They know they're going to be rescued from the wrath to come. They wait for the son from heaven, whom he's raised from the dead. It's their eternal perspective that allows them to endure the temporal suffering and It's founded in that relationship with Jesus. I was just thinking this morning, it's not in my notes, but I just thought of it. Um, remember the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40? They were, Peter was just a few, you know, 50, well, yeah, two, three months earlier denying Jesus. Fast forward a few months, he's now flogged for his faith. And when they walk away, they were rejoicing, considering themselves worthy to suffer for his name's sake. So he goes from denial to rejoicing, because he knows now who Jesus is and what messiahship truly meant in his life. May in our suffering we have joy in the Holy Spirit knowing who Jesus is and what he has prepared for us. The second evidence um, of the gospel's profound change in their life is found in verse 9. It's his here that they themselves report what kind of reception that we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So they turned from an old way of life to a life found in Jesus. In other words, the gospel produced repentance in the Thessalonians. You remember in Revelation, when we studied Revelation, how big a deal turning from the cultural way of living was. Remember social life? Your social life, your friends, your family, your work life with your fellow colleagues was all intertwined with your religion you couldn't separate the two in our culture the, the you know there's a public and private sphere so and religion's in the private sphere in our culture you don't talk about pol- politics and religion right that's the whole thing we always say it's private that's between me and, and my, my creator or whatever or the higher power which is the famous phrase in our culture right that's how we talk not in that culture. In that culture, religion permeated every aspect of your of your being. It was it was bound up in one, one giant ball. So if you claimed affiliation to anyone outside of um, Caesar and the gods of the day, it came with severe. It could come with severe problems in your life, severe affliction and persecution. So you could end up being marginalized. You could be slandered. You could lose work you could be imprisoned, you could be martyred. And remember, the Thessalonians had actually done this very thing. They'd, they'd accepted Jesus as Lord. Acts seventeen seven. they were accused of defying Caesar's decrees and saying there was another Lord, the Lord Jesus. And Paul's saying, there was clearly repentance in their lives. They broke from the sins of the culture to follow Christ. Now, there were times probably in pastor's ministries in which this whole thing about idolatry would be more metaphorical, meaning like, you know, if you, if, you, uh, if you love your wife more than God, that's an idol in your life, or if you love the bottle more than God, that's an idol in your life. That's how we used to talk. But I can say with confidence, because of what I see in this community, idolatry in the literal sense of the word exists today more than ever. You can find statues outside people's homes. You can go to people in the occult for guidance and pay good money for it. You can buy crystals. You can sage your house. You can buy books on the incantations in the bookstores in town. Idolatry is rampant in our community. Janice, one time, about two years ago, and maybe you'll remember this, those of you who are on the mom's Facebook page, about two years ago, Janice came to me all up in arms. Like, you won't believe what I just saw this morning. I'm like, what's going on, honey? She's like, well, somebody posted on the mama's Facebook page that they thought there was a ghost in their house. And I'm like, well, what happened? She's like, there was something like 40 responses from different moms in the community telling them what to do. And I'm like, well, what they tell them to do? <laughs> and she's like, well, there was like people saying, you know, go go phone this person and go phone that person and hire this spiritist and hire that that uh, you know witch and go buy this and sage your house and go buy this crystal and this rock and you name it. There were multiple multiple responses about what they should do to get rid of this ghost in their house. You know what's sad? Not one said, go to this church and speak to the Christians there to come and minister in this home. We don't live in a culture anymore like we used to. Idolatry is rampant. And the church is going to increasingly have a place as we deal with this stuff. As we preach the word and we see the power of the Holy Spirit move in signs and wonders, and in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I believe that the Lord is going to raise us up to have a more prevalent place in our society. So, turning from idolatry in our culture still has a place in the traditional sense of the word. But I don't want to limit it, limit it to that this morning. The gospel is to turn us from all sorts of different sins. So I'm not sure where you're at this morning but if you have a if you are known for anger the Lord's asking you to turn if you're known for gossip the Lord's asking you to turn if you're known for stealing for lying for sexual sin for holding on to unforgiveness for seeking to live your life completely independent of God the Lord is calling you this morning turn to him and model of the faith, love, and hope of the Thessalonians. So the gospel, to take hold of someone's life, must come to you, it must work in you, and it must come from you. Let's read 7 and 8. Actually, I'll take a running start again at 6. You became imitators of us and of the the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And here's the key. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. we have a saying that goes something like this. Oh, your reputation precedes you. Well, that's exactly what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians. Your reputation in the the Roman Empire, in this area, it's going forth. People have heard about what's gone on in your community, and you're an example to everyone. If they had social media back then and the Internet... Their Facebook pages, their accounts be blown up with the Thessalonians' faith as to what was happening amongst them. They had become role models to the other believers throughout the, the area. Their fellow Christian communities had heard about what was happening, and it was serving as an encouragement to others for them to also persevere in the same type of trials. Now, this is really important for us because it's it's really cool that when you think about this, like you and I in this church could serve as an encouragement to other people. People could hear what's happening in Genesis House and other believers hear about it and go, wow, what an encouragement because we're facing the same things in our lives and we've heard how you weathered the storm and how the Lord's matured you. And we want to, we just want to say thank you for what you've gone through. You've given us the strength to keep going, to persevere, or to take risks in faith. I was reminded of this uh, just uh, last week. I was in Saskatoon. And uh, there's a new church planting director in our, in our denomination. He's from Ghana. And I met him. And we had a brief conversation. And just so you know, I'm trying to, he's coming to Calgary. I'm trying to get him to come to our church on, in October. Um, you'll love this guy. Uh, he's amazing. But Jervis was asking us questions about our origins of church planting and I just said to him, like we just said to him, well, tell us yours. And so he talked about like how this Muslim, his mentor was a Muslim who was driving a truck, much like Roger, that was his vocation. And he was just driving and Jesus appeared to him in his truck and transformed his life and he gave his life to the Lord and the Lord says, I'm appointing you to ministry. He gave up his trucking career, everything like that, and went in to become an evangelist. And Jervis was sharing his stories about how he would accompany him everywhere in Ghana and how many plant- churches they planted and all the spiritual stuff they had to encounter, opposition and victories and all these things. And when I, when he was talking, I was trying everything in my being not to cry. Like I had tears inside that were like kind of like Jeff at the microphone. I was just like, oh my goodness, like hold it together. Kit, keep it together, keep it together. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you will know that reference. Anyway. But I was trying to keep it together because I was just in, just welling up in tears with his experience. And here's why. He had walked in years ago what we're trying to walk now in our church as we speak. In the last two years, we've been trying to model the very thing that he was doing back in Ghana. And I was just welling up inside going, man, this is such an encouragement for us to keep going. Because he served as his example and went the path before us that I was like, "We, it was just confirmation. Keep going in the way you're going. Don't change the course of action. Don't let the accuser get in your head and say, just stop, keep going. And so Jervis, again, was an example to me and it encouraged me. And that's what we can be to other people. And this is what the Thessalonians were to the other Christians in their, in their known world. They served as a massive encouragement. Now I want to finish with one final thought. And it's an important one. And I'm going to ask you in a form of a question. And you don't have to answer out loud. If you want to, you can, but I'm not going to make you. I want to finish with this one thought to wrap it up. If I were to ask you to tell me who Jesus is in one word or one sentence, what would you say? Define Jesus in one word or one sentence. Who is he? that in mind I want you to read verse 10 we want he says this you have waited for the his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who so who is a defining principle who does what who rescues us from the wrath to come in your definition of Jesus most likely nobody here Thought of, he's the one who saves us from the wrath to come. Most likely, you're thinking, he's love. He's a redeemer. He's a savior. Right? That's how normally we think. Paul, in his opening introduction to the Thessalonians, defines Jesus as the one who saves us from the wrath to come. Do you see the challenge in our culture with that definition? when we are to proclaim the gospel? We learn something about Paul. When he went to the Thessalonians, part of his gospel message included, by the way, Thessalonians, Christ came to save you from the wrath to come. That was part of his message. Here is the challenge in ours, in nokotoks If you disagree with anybody, you're called a hater. If you disagree with anyone and call out their way of life, you're called judgmental. If you speak loud enough, you're canceled. But Paul, if he lived in Okotoks, would have that definition of Christ as part of his gospel truth. Now, can you see how affliction and persecution could creep into our church quite easily? (laughs) If We actually preached the full gospel message the way Paul was it to the Thessalonians Now we have to do it with wisdom and gentleness and care in mind, but we can't Deny and out of fear Not proclaim the whole gospel message The truth is that the gospel The gospel truth is that Jesus does save people from the wrath to come and there's no way around it so i'm going to finish with lessons in the form of questions for those of us in positions of leadership do we like paul take the time to diligently pray for genesis house and give thanks and praise for who we have become as a christian community and i'm looking in the mirror primarily when i ask that question And with conviction, I can say not as much as Paul. So I've got got to first apply the word to my own life moving forward. But it's a good question. Number two, the gospel message and the Holy Spirit work together to bring about conviction in people's lives. Do we share the gospel message with others? Are we willing to share it? If it changes life, are we willing to share it? Number two, are we confident in how to articulate the gospel truths? Do we know what the gospel is and how we talk to someone about it? And third, are we trusting the Holy Spirit to work powerfully in the lives we share it with? Again, our job is not to be the people who convert them. Our job is to share it and let the Holy Spirit do His work. And we just don't know who He'll work in or not. And here's the thing, guys. I'm going to stand guilty as charged, but you can relate exactly to what I see, what I feel. If you saw a guy with, um, you know, like a a shaved head, a big beard, like tattoos all through his arms, and like look like a bodybuilder type dude, and had, you know, the big caterpillar work boots on, you'd automatically think, that guy is not going to respond to the gospel message, because look at him. And then you see some nice sort of like petite grandmother, well put together with her hair freshly done, and curlers just came out that that morning and she's just a lovely little lady And you think well she's likely going to receive the gospel because look how nice she is we do that all the time we judge from the outside who we think is receptive to the scriptures but that's not our job because how do we know that the grandma's heart is softer than the guy with the tattoos just because he looked different on the outside the guy with the tattoos and that uh, persona might be just because he is so broken, he's trying to put a shell of protection around himself. That could be. Our job is not to determine who hears it. Our, do- our job is just to proclaim it when we're given the opportunities and open doors and let the Holy Spirit sort out the people. Trust the Holy Spirit to do his job. And we do ours and we partner with him. Number three, we learn from Paul that persecution does not have to impact our joy. What would your current attitude be if you were to be persecuted for the sake of Christ? Would you think God has abandoned you? Would you think God is distant? Would you see God as distant and unloving? If yes, how can we learn from the Apostles, Jesus, and the Thessalonians? Because they became third-generation imitators of the Apostles and the Lord. All three of them received it in joy because of knowing who he is. Number four, one's personal testimony can be a powerful example to other Christians. Whose life has impacted yours and spurred you on to follow Christ? What was it about their life that was such an encouragement? Again, the Thessalonians were examples to other believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Who's impacted you? And how have they brought you to to the um, faith in the Lord and the strength that you have in them now? Just something fun to think about. Or you could ask it the opposite way. Who are you to others? That's another way you could ask the question. Number five. How does Paul's definition of Jesus, being the one who rescues us from the wrath to come, impact you? What challenges do you think this definition poses to our context where many believe truth is relative? In other words, truth's whatever you want to make it. Do you think our proclamation of this truth will impact the amount of affliction we encounter in our culture? And finally, is there anything in your life right now that the holy spirit is convicting you to turn from maybe you don't know the lord this morning and he's asking you and convicting you to surrender your life to him you've never trusted him up to this point and he's, he's working in your heart saying trust me give your life over to me maybe there's patterns of sin even running and playing games with god you've given your life to christ but there's a pattern of sin that's not been turned over to him. And so the Lord's calling you this morning to give it up and to deal with it. Perhaps we've been mixed up in idolatry. It's surprising how many Christian people that I've talked to or know of who have become synchrotistic. So they've given their life to the Lord at one point, but they don't mind checking out the horoscope once in a while. They don't mind having the crystals at their bedside, believing they have power to invoke change. They have gone to the tarot card reader in town when things have gotten really tough. If that's you this morning, the Lord is asking you to turn from those things and renounce those things in your life as well, trust fully in Him.